Hello and welcome to Culture Sex Relationships with me, Justin Hancock. I'm absolutely thrilled to be joined by a returning guest, Scott Burnett. Hello, Scott Burnett. Hi, Hi. Justin. Really great to be here. Yes, so great for you to come on. (laughs) You were here around this time last year. Things haven't improved. <laughs> <laughs> if anything, they're looking slightly weirder. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. I'm not. You know, I'm not blaming you at all. Of course. Um, so last time uh, you came on to talk about um, the what you were doing on the manosphere, uh, which was super interesting um, conversation. And actually, in that conversation, we were kind of talking about. We had a bit of a tangent, I think, where we were talking about some of the things that I've uh, asked you to come on to talk about today, which is the kind of. Um, this kind of relationship between um, kind of uh, heterosexuality and kind of like enforced heterosexuality and gender roles, gender norms, and why people have sex, you know, for, for, mm. for uh, what well, narratives we have around why people should have sex about reproduction uh, and how that is linked to the National Project. So that's our conversation for today. But first of all, just want to give yourselves a, a brief intro to our to our listeners again in case they are uh, unfamiliar with you sure um so i um am a and currently an assistant professor um, of communications at the university of gothenburg in sweden um and i kind of uh, coming from a south african perspective most of my academic career has been focused on unpacking whiteness Mm -hmm. and how race plays out in a variety of different contexts. And from the beginning in my research, in fact, the first paper I ever published was actually um, making the argument that you can't really understand uh, whiteness as uh, a disembodied thing, Mm -hmm. that you need to understand it as gendered and sexed, Mm -hmm. so that race always comes with gender and sexuality. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, I was making that argument specifically in the context of a campaign in South Africa against rhino poaching and the way that uh, black uh, men specifically are uh, made into this kind of devil figure um, that are threatening uh, the nation with poaching, uh, you know, right. and whose sort of effects on um, the, the, the um, identity projects around conservation um, are akin to um, the role that... Uh, they're very often culturally seen to play in terms of kind of penis symbols. And you get all of these themes of sexuality and, mm. um, uh, and kind of masculinity coming through in the way that people talk about poaching, the way that people talk about rhinos, mm. uh, a strong erection, all of these things right. kind of, you know, um, play, play a big role in that, in that discourse. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I'm very interested in um, analysing f- from a variety of different traditions mm. Um, our everyday discourses, um, whether in social media, mainstream media, um, around race, gender, mm. and sexuality. Um, so that's more or less uh, who I am. <laughs> <laughs> that's really interesting. And um, yeah, it's really, uh, and that's why I've got you back on the show. Uh, actually, the, the, the thing that kind of sparked my, uh, my, the particular moment where I thought, okay, I've got to actually... Uh, get around to email scott was that um uh eleanor yanniger friend of the show show and part of the show uh tweeted a story or retweeted a story to dunk on it uh from the sun i think it was about some cabinet member in the uk talking about a, a well the sun framed it as bonk for britain which is what the sun mm. does um <laughs> yeah and uh and basically the idea which is apparently um Already happening in uh, Viktor Orban's Hungary, apparently, is our specific tax incentives to increase the birth rate. Um, and uh, we're already seeing a lot of these kinds of discourses um, in a lot of far-right politics at the moment. Uh, so the election of Giorgio, Giorgio Maloney in Italy. Um, and uh, I think there's probably some of this going on also in Brazil at the moment, the Brazilian election as well, about about things to do with the family, gender, yeah. masculinity. Um, so I kind of wanted to get you on to talk about that, really. So um, <laughs> because you wrote this a really excellent paper, uh, which came out earlier this year, Breeders for Race and Nation, Gender, Sexuality and Fecundity in Post-War British Fascist Discourse, yeah. um, which, dear listener, I'll put in the show notes. Um, it's uh, an academic paper, but it's very accessible. And actually, the whole paper is available online so thank you for that as well so can you um 
give us like a brief kind of overview before we kind of get into the the models in the paper around gender and the, that you kind of talk about but just like a do, do you have like a kind of an overview for us around around this kind of stuff and, and where it's fitting in at the moment um sure well um so this particular project um and this particular paper um came from a conversation that i was having with a friend and uh, who also now is a, a co-author, um, John Richardson. And John is uh, probably the, one of the world's leading experts on post-war British fascism. He wrote um, a, a monograph on uh, the discourses of, uh, of British fascism and is uh, also one of the leading critical discourse uh, studies scholars um, in the world. He's the uh, um, editor of a famous uh, academic uh, journal called Critical Discourse Studies. So he's, but he, his kind of approach in, in many of the things that he's done has been to look at historical analysis of discourse. And we were having a conversation about uh, the present, uh, you know, about uh, the kinds of things that I've been uh, studying online, uh, the manosphere stuff mm -hmm. uh, that I think we'll, we, we spoke a bit about last time and I'm sure we'll speak about a bit yeah. again today. Um, but the way that um, uh, masculinity and a particular gender politics is so dominant mm. um, in these online spaces and in the, the, the kind of the, um, the development of a new, new alt-right or extreme right or, or whatever we call it. Uh, subjectivity. And John said, well, you know, he's got all of this data that he's been analysing from post-war British fascism. And, um, you know, he sees the, the, the gender stuff coming across there very strongly. And don't, uh, don't we want to collaborate a bit to try to understand um, what's going on there um, in his texts and to, to kind of do a bit of uh, uh, more kind of intersectional analysis of not only what was the fascist project um, in Britain as a uh, a political kind of phenomenon um, structured around great men, um, but mm. how did they understand gender? How did they um, speak about um, uh, women and men and families, uh, etc.? And though um, though I think you know John and I were were perhaps aware vaguely, probably John more than uh, more than I, that um, this was a, an important theme uh, in uh, historical. Uh, um, work on on fascism, mm. um, we really uh, learned a lot by going through all of the all of the scholarship. So in fact, this paper, like the first half of it, um, is and it's quite abnormal for a paper to have quite so much literature review in it. But we spend a lot of time going through just how much of an important theme gender and sexuality have been um, in studies of fascism in the past. Mm. Um, there are still some. People, when they're writing about uh, fascism and the far right, who will say that, you know, it's fundamentally about uh, the nation or fundamentally about race mm. or fundamentally about kind of, you know, uh, uh, powerfully um, uh, quashing dissent or whatever it might be. Mm. And that gender and sexuality are somehow secondary mm. um, in mm. some of the, the kind of the mainstream definitions you get of fascism. Um, you, you, you know, gender is a puzzle that is solved later. Um, it, it's not seen as fundamental. Yeah. Um, so we really spend a lot of time here arguing in the first half of the paper that if you look at, at the analysis over the years, you can't really understand the fascist way of thinking about the world unless you put sexuality and gender right at the center um, of, of your analysis and that it's not secondary at all. It's primary to thinking about what's going on um, in these political um, um, ideologies that's it's that's it's so it's so important um and that's a really useful framing for the article as well um and it is very kind of uh annoying and upsetting that uh, we can't do the uh, we can't have the we can't hold two ideas simultaneously we can't we, we mm. the, the idea that uh gender and sexuality is kind of put into the kind of nice to have kind of pot over here which is something that we might want to work on but that whole kind of a political or class-based first uh, analysis of politics is um, uh, just uh, it's just so redundant. We have to be able to do both at, uh, at the same time and also to Absolutely. see those connections and to see how it's part of this kind of broader, going to drop in a, a fancy word, dear listener, it's part of this broader kind of hegemonic project of power relations, right? Uh, I've just yeah. been reading, a dear listener, I might be talking about this, uh, 
I've, been, I've just been reading Hegemony now and also uh, Abolish the Family by Sophie Lewis. So I'll probably be throwing a few words up because they're in my head. I'll probably be talking about them a bit as well as uh, reading Scott's paper. And it, I don't know whether it's because I haven't, you know, I'm not an academic, but as soon as I read something, I can see that in your work and in Hegemony now by uh, um, Alex Williams and Jeremy Gilbert and uh, Sophie Lewis's book, this kind of hegemonic idea of how um, masculinity and whiteness and race are kind of uh, are, are produced and reproduced in that way as part of the uh, heteropatriarchal capitalist kind of project it's just there and if we're mm. seeing this as, as you say if we're just seeing it as this kind of side issue we're never going to really fully understand it yeah um, yeah and I, I think that that's um, like it's, it's an important um, thing to think through as people who are you know members of a society going through a lot of political turmoil. I mean, I'm in Sweden, you're in the UK, you know, I'm sure the listeners come from a variety of different uh, contexts that are probably also in a fair bit of turmoil. And that's that we, 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 we need to stop thinking of like our everyday, perhaps, you know, 90s through 2010s sense of normality of kind of, you know, oh, we live in stable liberal democracies. Right. Oh, you know, this is just the way the world is. And fascism is something weird. Mm. It's something like uh, strange. It's a, it's that thing that we saw in the World War Two movies. Mm. The people who do it have funny accents. Yeah. You know, they're, they're somehow intrinsically evil. Mm. Um, and they're, you know, these, they're these really weird creatures and we know exactly what a fascist is. Mm. The closer you look at these um, ideologies, in my opinion, um, the more you realize that they, they hook on to things that are every day, that are taken for granted, that are, in your word, hegemonic. Yeah. Um, and one of the, the most powerful um, uh, sort of symbols that they, uh, uh, that they hook onto are our ideas about families and right. good mothers and good fathers and, you know, being... Uh, a, a masculine man or a feminine woman these kind of like things that we see that are reproduced every day in in music videos and mm. tv commercials and you know they're 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 totally normal and they're where fascism gets a lot of its energy from um and we have to understand why what what's kind of going on there that is uh that is giving fascism so much uh so much energy and sorry i suppose i should just say that i'm I'm going to use the word fascism here because I'm talking about an article where we where we talk about where we analyze fascism. But in my view, there are not going to be clear uh, sort of cutoff points where I can say, okay, this is fascist, that's far right, this is extreme right, that's Nazi, you know, <laughs> and this is just conservative. And um, especially when we're talking about these kind of issues, um, it really is a, a kind of a cluster of um, of ideologies rather than being you know, something that you can necessarily tease apart very, very clearly. Yeah, that's really useful. Um, and also, uh, in a bit also, I'm, I'm going to ask you about some of the more kind of, uh, perhaps we might think centrist or kind of liberal positions around um, around these kinds of discourses as well. But mm. I just want to kind of, the, the thing I really want to pick out from your, from your article, um, I'd encourage everyone to read it. Also, just a uh, mental note as well, the... Um, in the article, it's interesting how the history of uh, British fascism kind of resolves itself because it just becomes kind of becomes part of mainstream discourse. Yeah. So there's a reason why we don't hear from the BMP so much anymore, dear listener. Mm. Um, so and a reason why we did actually, ironically, in the early two thousands, and a reason why we don't now. Anyway, so but let's get onto the onto the model um, of so. Um, I'll get you to explain it rather than me to mangle it. But you have this kind of central model about what gender does. Um, in these political spaces, that uh, if you could explain that, sure. Well. Yeah. So, so what we did is we looked at um, uh, historical um, fascist movements and some uh, uh, latter-day um, uh, um, far-right uh, parties, um, including our Sweden Democrats here in Sweden, um, and we looked at, at various analyses of them um, and the way in which that analysis had brought gender to the fore, and we found that there were, you know quite clear dynamics um, that were working across a number of different country contexts um, uh, simultaneously, uh, as it were, and across time. Um, at the center of these dynamics um, is that there is some kind of um, internal or external 
enemy, um, either threatening the nation from within, um, uh, especially in the case of anti-Semitism, of course, that's generally felt and uh, constructed as an internal threat, um, or from without, um, uh, the the kind of uh, immigration scares, the kind of you know, um, anti-immigration programs of uh, post-war, um, uh, um, the National Front, for example, uh, in the UK, trying to stop uh, um, immigration from uh, the Caribbean um, and uh, um, South Asia into uh, into the UK. So the, the, those two things, it's the, you know, the enemy within who's undermining us mm-hmm. and the people from the outside that are going to come. Uh, and 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 swamp us. So it's structured around those things, and it's very often uh, structured as a uh, a critique of modernity. So a critique of where we are now, um, for a variety of different reasons, and in a in a variety of different uh, modernities. Basically, um, no matter which decade you look at fascists in, they're always um, uh, mourning the loss of. Uh, a golden age that is in the past. They're, they're mourning um, the, the 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 move to urban areas from a rural idyll. They're they're mourning the loss of supposed racial homogeneity in the past um, uh, for kind of uh, a miscegenated or degenerated um, situation mm. right now. And they're they're taking this mourning and they're blaming it on the internal. Uh, and the exten- external enemies. And this creates a whole uh, sort of logic mm. of um, gender and sexuality uh, around it. Um, so firstly, the, um, the, the logic of the, of the family, of the, the nuclear family, mom, dad, uh, and children, is naturalized as an eternal value. It's something that is made to appear as something that is kind of um, almost like a, a sacred um, thing uh, that is um, uh, uniquely under attack uh, at the moment because of these external and external enemies, because of modernity. We've got this eternal value being uh, being attacked. And part of those eternal values also are these ideas that, for example, you know, um, a woman is, uh, you know, a feminine person mm-hmm. who has two X chromosomes, you know, all this kind of turfy, uh, language that we see mobilized today. Of course, you know, not in all historical fascisms, but certainly those kinds of biological and eternal, um, you know, those fixed definitions of this is absolutely what a woman is, yeah. and this is absolutely what a man is. Mm. And men and women are uh, part of that sex binary, and they're supposed to be having sex uh, with each other. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of the one, the one dynamic is to make these things into eternal uh, values. Um, a, a complementary dynamic to that um, is the idea that in society, once we take these uh, eternal values into uh, the world, that we have specifically different roles uh, to play. Um, and these roles have a, have a, a kind of an, an inflection uh, in fascism that sets them apart from kind of our you know, normal everyday uh, heteropatriarchy. Um, and these really are the ideas that the, 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 the woman's role is to defend and to passionately procreate the family. So that kind of social reproduction role, which um, I, I actually haven't read uh, um, uh, Family Abolition yet, um, but that kind of like, you know, the, the idea that the, 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 um, it's the woman's job to to make, I'm sure is, is part of that argument that, yeah. <laughs> that I'm looking forward to reading. But, but yeah, that idea that, um, you know, women's role is to make sure that uh, they passionately raise children who are going to defend the nation, um, that they raise as many children as possible, that those uh, children are prepared for, um, uh, um, to, you know, to, to defend against these internal and external enemies. Um, and that they are basically sort of being um, suckled on the milk of um, uh, uh, nationalism and the race, etc., um, is a very important part of the woman's role. So she's not necessarily submissive. Her sexed role um, here is not necessarily uh, just to kind of do whatever mm. men say, but it's to passionately submit to uh, the reproduction of the race and to do it well and to raise you know, martial uh, families. The man's role, of course, is is really to be uh, out there um, in a in a in a 
both in an aggressive and in a, in a defensive role, um, to be policing the boundaries of, of that nation um, and to be making sure that the, the work of social reproduction that the woman is responsible for is not interrupted by um, the internal or external enemies. So he pl plays that kind of like, you know, uh, almost martial or military um, role there uh, in terms of, uh, of the family. So that at, at the sexed roles level, that's the, the second dynamic. The third dynamic is that those gendered roles and the, the definitions of what men and women should be are not only uh, about what we do in families and what we do in society, but about the way that a, a nation should or should not operate politically. Mm -hmm. So they become metaphors for um, the, you know, the way that Britain behaves mm -hmm. or the way that Germany behaves. Um, the, the classic example that we discuss um, in uh, post-war British fascism uh, is the idea that the, uh, the colonial, uh, the, the British Empire, so in the colonial days, then we were real men, you know, then we would go and we would, um, uh, you know, uh, um, explore and conquer and thrust our flags into the ground. Um, and now, now that we have a commonwealth and we do overseas development assistance and all of these things, that's a much more feminine thing. So the, the nation has become feminized, right? Um, uh, and you see that a lot in um, uh, kind of right-wing discourse, um, also in, in the modern day where, um, you know, overseas assistance is, or, and sometimes even welfare are seen as being um, kind of a soft thing to do, mm. as being a womanly thing to do. It's not really the way that a nation should behave. A nation should behave, behave in a manly way. Um, it should be, um, you know, confident. It should be, you know, with all of these kind of nonsense uh, um, associations between what masculine and feminine yeah. um, are. Um, there's a there's a fantastic um, book from uh, two, two books actually from the eighties by um, a uh, um, uh, a psychoanalyst called Klaus Teverleit that um, uh, has been really ins inspirational for a num number of scholars working on, on uh, uh, the foreign extreme right at the moment. And he traces in um, the kind of proto-Nazi um, fascisms of uh, a group of men in the Freikorps um, in the, the, the 20s and 30s, a, a persistent uh, construction of um, men as needing to be hard and to be like rocks against which the you know the world, including all that is feminine, all that is communist, all that is modern, would break. Mm. So the but the man would stay hard and strong like a rock, and everything else would be ground to pulp. Um, so a lot of the kind of the the imagery that is associated with those historical moments is about men being hard and women being soft, mm. women being. Um, you know, a as Tevelite calls them, you know, eventually a bloody mass, um, and that it's that bloody mass, the the the, the threat of dis of dissolution, um, that uh, is uh, uh, attached to feminism, attached to socialism, attached to uh, popular culture, um, uh, and ultimately to uh, to Judaism, especially in the more anti-Semitic. Um, uh, um, fascisms, so that it becomes a, a matter of, you know, we know who's doing this. Mm -hmm. It's the Jews. They've corrupted everything. Right. That rot, and of course, rot is also soft. So the rot starts from the middle of society. It makes, um, and funnily enough, like the, the, the sign of this rot is that women become feminized and men, sorry, women become masculinized and men, men become feminized. Yeah. Um, and of course, they become, you know, women become lesbians, men become... Uh, um, homosexuals, you know, uh, we also then get the the, the various kind of transphobic um, discourses around uh, men who, you know, want to be women and women who want to be men uh, developing straight from there. So, so those things work both at a kind of an embodied role in the family and at a political metaphorical level. The final uh, dynamic, which is how this all kind of fits into a political imaginary um, is the idea of competitive fecundity. Um, so basically the idea that it's you are as a nation or as a race, that it is 
it indexes your strength, your numerical strength, the number of people that you that belong to your race and that are strongly defending your race and not letting the enemies uh, in. Um, we also we, we, we talk about it as, as reproductive futurity, which is a concept from queer theory about the way that the, the, the com- compulsoriness of um, of you know having a family of you know reproducing um, is kind of he- well hegemonic. There we go again with that word um, within uh, so so many of our societies that um, any kind of um, challenging to that thinking of um, a future that is not structured around reproduction um, is seen as almost unthinkable, uh, and that's sort of where the the queering comes in. It's not necessarily about you know being gay or anything. The querying is to, you know, can we think humanity without constantly structuring everything around reproduction? Um, and, and that really is the, the, the kind of the linchpin of the, whole, of the whole system, because it's what makes protecting the nation against those internal and external enemies make sense. Mm. That essentially what you're doing is you're trying to get your numbers up. You're trying to strengthen the border around them and keep the others outside um, of the nation, and in order for that to happen, of course, you can't have the, the the feminism and the gender bending, and the socialism and the Judeo-Bolshevism and all the other sort of terms that they invent to describe um, modernity, to describe how the enemies are busy eroding um, our eternal values mm. as a people. So those those are the, the the dynamics as we as we identified them in the literature. That's so interesting. And so, dear listener, you can see where this uh, the Bonk for Britain uh, stuff has real clear resonances <laughs> yes. with um, with that with the uh, the uh, competitive fecundity idea. And um, mm. uh, I guess we're going to come on to talk about um, some of the discourses how they've seeped in these kinds of discourses have seeped uh, elsewhere as well. Into, for example, talking about. Um, the environment but <clears throat> it's interesting how um, again just let, let's just talk about hegemony for a second and, and perhaps I'll need to unpack it dear listener but um, hegemony if whenever you think of hegemony just think of common sense or uh, received wisdom and so the idea of um, you know a mum dad and sex and kids is all kind of in this is is part of this kind of common sense idea well this is how we get here this is and so that means the purpose of sex is this and and so that means that we have a family that does this and it's really important to know that this idea of the the family uh first of all is um something which is uh very white and actually quite capitalist as well, although various forms of this were happening uh, pre in pre-capitalism. But also, it's important also to know pre-capitalism. Eighty percent of us were peasants, and so uh, as uh, Dr. Eleanor Yanaga would say, and in her latest book would say, everyone was working, uh, everyone was doing all of the work that needed to happen on the farm. Um, but this. Um, and this is and where the, there are overlaps between this conversation and um, and the book hegemony now is to talk about the nuclear family and how that was um, kind of a reproduction of uh, a new form of like family and heterosexuality in the Fordist period so in the period from yeah. the 1920s to uh, the late 60s uh, early 70s and that idea of the kind of the man being like the the breadwinner uh, and the woman being the person responsible for social reproduction, so care of the home, care of creating uh, a family and uh, and and uh, socially producing the family, that she that she was the you know the stay at home kind of mum is a is a very very modern idea, like within the last hundred years. That and that common sense idea is incredibly powerful. And the the hege- the hegemony bit of this, so hegemony as well as meaning common sense, it also means that so it comes from apparently uh it comes from Antonio Gramsci and the Italian word hegemonia, which is more to do with the word to be led to think that way or to be led that way. And the reason why we have this period in in the last century of Fordism was that as the name implies Henry Ford who uh, had, had an, as was a kind of a symbol for the um, uh, a symbol for uh, Fordism uh, as 
he didn't kind of invent the term, that was Gramsci's term, but basically the idea is, is that we are going to create um, a new class of worker who has enough money to buy our cars, basically. Uh, apparently a union boss was going around one of the plants with Henry Ford and said, well, you know, um, if you don't pay us enough, we can't buy your cars, So, and you're going to run out of people who can buy your cars. So he said, okay, well, we'll pay you more, but... <laughs> You have to, so, but also he would have strict rules on uh, what the workers did and how they behaved and how they behaved at home. So heterosexuality was really like strictly enforced from the boss. Um, yeah. Apparently, also he had a picture of Hitler on his desk. Apparently, Hitler had a picture of Henry Ford on his desk. I don't know. Where yeah, else he was a know. huge, yeah. huge anti-Semite. Right. He he funded all kinds of weird eugenic projects. Mm. Uh, yeah. And it's strange to see, um, I mean, you know, sorry, I, I don't want to interrupt no, no, your, your, your train of thought, but um, it's, it's really strange to see now the role that Elon Musk is playing um, as another big kind of auto manufacturer. Um, Musk often uh, takes to Twitter to discuss birth rates. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And he's, he, he's in a slightly different um, kind of culty uh, space, which is this whole... Um, uh, the whole idea of uh, long-termism mm. um, that, uh, you know, human beings can somehow be um, uploaded into digital forms and that maximizing their uh, future happiness is the most important um, uh, moral uh, obligation that we have today. Right. Um, but so he's got this whole, this whole thing about, you know, we need as many people as possible um, and we need ah. to, to be sort of frantically reproducing um, the human race, the human race. Um, although, you know, it, he, he, he hasn't yet, although in the people he associates with, it's quite clear that he, uh, is, um, thinking of this in racial terms. He hasn't actually come out and said it right. yet, but clearly he thinks that more, um, middle-class, preferably white babies, um, is the way to, uh, to save the world. Right. Um, I hadn't made those. Yeah. Uh, I hadn't drawn those links before. That's really smart. That's uh, yeah. That's really really interesting. Um, I guess the, just the final sentence of what I was saying was that this common sense we can feel so in inverted commas natural because mm. we live it. Because you know this is how most of us are brought up. Well, particularly in white Western. Um, well, not even just white countries, but, you know, anywhere where this has been uh, colonised uh, by the West, um, this is going to be our experience of growing up for, for many of us. And so, but also it's, so it feels very bio for a lot of people. And so in that way, it feels very kind of natural in that kind of sense. Yeah. But, you know, like all of these things, and one of the key words for this podcast, it's actually uh, our experience of gender and sexuality is biopsychosocial. And also, is uh, it's a constant process of becoming or becoming other as well as I've been talking mm. about lately on the podcast. But it's you know it's 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 often hard for people who want to be critical of this to be able to want to step outside of this as well, because another place where we see this and just just in my experience is sex education. So the first thing I ask anyone who comes in any of my training courses is to ask them about their sex education, and I say, well. Okay, what was it? And they say, okay, well, we didn't get much of it. And we're told not to do it until we're older, but that it had to be <laughs> a straight experience. So men and women, uh, penis and vagina sex. Uh, the only purpose, the only reason to do it was um, uh, to have kids. Um, mm. Pleasure's never mentioned. Consent's never mentioned. Queerness never mentioned. Relationships never mentioned. Feelings never yeah. mentioned. Like, so it's hardly surprising that, you know, it's, that it's in this way hegemonic or common sense. We're taught it. We live it. We hear it in politics, and so to even to think about critiquing it can feel like a very big deal for people. Um, yeah. But that should be the work that we're all doing. We, we, we can we can historicize our, our sex ed and understand where sex ed comes from. Um, you know, like so many things, unfortunately, including um, sexual reproductive health services, Planned Parenthood. These these you know, a lot of these things have their roots in eugenic projects. Big time. Um, you know, get the idea that you would get the children together and teach them how to have sex properly and kind of give them a quite a normative picture mm -hmm. uh, of, you know, this is when you do it, this is why you do it, etc. That you talk about these things um, openly and give them the kind of medical account of it is because, you you know, the society needs more of their babies to be born. Right. You know, it needs a, it, it's a, it's a, a part of population 
management yeah. <laughs> ultimately. Oh yeah, I mean, um, I actually yeah. knew uh, in my early early days of working in uh, family planning clinics the some of the you know lovely but you know some of the kind of uh, older posh ladies working in family planning had kind of vestiges of some of those kinds of um ideas of uh, that were very classist and and racist yeah. about about control and hygiene exactly and yeah ableist also like kind of you know ideas that ultimately have their their origins in um and the notion that you the the, the 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 principle of good public health and uh, public policy is to be managing the gene stock or managing kind of the racial strength uh, of the people so including you know things like you know um, uh, um, aborting uh, you know when you know there's some kind of uh, risk of a some sort of abnormality right. um, you know all, all kinds of yeah. very nasty very um, yeah um, yeah. Very, very problematic ideas that that um, were, were coming around at, at uh, around the same time. Mm. So, so that were being um, uh, that came out of those late nineteenth century um, social Darwinist mm. theories about how uh, cultures and nations are a bit like ecosystems and therefore need to be managed in the same way so that we get fitter people. Yeah, um, physical education is another example of classic example actually like doing physical education in schools mm. um uh, is something that uh, really got its big lift off uh, during the uh, the early fascist uh, period um it's you know that you 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 should be you know developing your body you should be as healthy as possibly as a young person mm. in order to um uh yeah. Well, that is also to, to kind of the, the another gender <laughs> binary, isn't it? About how we treat the body and the mind as being two separate things. Uh, um, and so uh, the idea of the kind of uh, the the rational uh, and the kind of the, uh, the 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 rational in control is coded as to be masculine, and the kind of the unruly body that is in need of control is in, is coded as kind of feminized uh, or fe feminine um and the, even that kind of uh so it's interesting how whenever we see a binary of uh how uh appearing anywhere that often that binary is in some way related to these normative ideas of gender um i think also so it's an interesting thing you say there about uh physical education because it's often seen PE and um, sex and relationships education in schools are often seen as like the low status subjects because they're about the body. But if they were reframed as being like an important national project in which the, boss of the body mm. was disciplined and made correct, then I'm sure there'd be a whole load of funding for it. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to do that, yeah. folks. Uh, <laughs> I guess the other... As, uh, in, because we're talking about where else we see these kinds of discourses. Let's talk about um, about uh, environmentalist discourse as well, and and uh, the idea of kind of overpopulation, which is. Mm. I mean, I've heard some really quite problematic things around this, so it'd be interesting to have, hear your thoughts about this as well. Um, so the 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 idea um, ultimately that it is um, uh, the excessive reproduction and excessive consumption of the global south including china uh, india southeast asia africa south america specifically um that this is the problem um in climate politics that this is where we need to go into to solve things um is unfortunately still um quite dominant uh, in a lot of environmentalist uh, movements in 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 much environmentalist thinking um you know i think like like many um like many people are our age my age i, I don't know um, i guess we're a similar um, some age of my, yeah more or less um what am i now 40 i always forget actually i, I think i'm 43 43 oh, no, i'm older than you yeah Okay, <laughs> I look a bit older. I used to smoke. You see, we uh, talk right. about like you know, uh, ruining the body. But yeah, Kids, um, don't smoke. Don't smoke. Very, <laughs> Although very bad. it is both very cool bad. and sexy. But uh... <laughs> <laughs> but um, the um, uh, the the 
Oh gosh, now I've lost oh, my train sorry. Of We're talking about um, <laughs> the people your age. Uh... Yes, have such fond memories of watching nature documentaries with, uh, what's his name? Sir David Attenborough. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, that, that wonderful man who's changed so many of our lives and done so much good for the world is also um, the, the, the patron of a charity called Population Matters, which is kind of the, uh, the leading charity uh, in articulating a respectable, modern, um, uh, you know, population bomb scare tactics um, a narrative for environmentalism. Um, How disappointing. Basically, in this no way idea. of... Yeah, in, in in sort of articulating the problem of uh, of of climate and of you know what we have to do in order um, to uh, to create um, a world that we can all live good lives on, um, the, the, this kind of neo Malthusianism neo Malthusianism it's called so basically the idea that you know people's populations uh, um, grow exponentially. Um, and they grow much faster than um, the, the the capacity of the land or of production uh, to feed them. So that ultimately they have to go to new places uh, and then sort of take over more space. Um, and then uh, um, kind of in order to survive, uh, in order to to access food. Um, and this neo-Malthusianism is highly racialized. Um, it's constantly uh, constructing the specter of... Um, you know, basically black, brown and indigenous people kind of swarming over the rest of the world in waves. Um, so when you hear about people talking about climate migration and things like that, I think we need to be very, very specific in the way that we, we uh, analyze those discourses. You know, are we talking about, um, uh, you know, the duties of all of us in the world to care about people whose lives and habitats have been destroyed um, by climate change? Or are we making an argument for stronger borders to protect us from the immigrants um, that are going to come when those environmental disasters happen? And they, of course, as we know, are already happening. Mm. Um, so, the, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a question of how is our uh, conversation about the environment oriented? Is it oriented around trying to, trying to get there to be less development in the global south, less people, uh, and to keep them the hell out of our countries, mm. yeah. right? As so much of it is at the yeah. moment. Or is it about justice? Is it about reparations? Um, is it about understanding that historically the reason we're in the predicament we are right now is because of what um, the West did over a period of about 150 years? Um, you know, it's, it's, it's so frustrating to see exactly the wrong lessons being taken um, from uh, the moment that we're in uh, at the moment, um, you know, that, that and he, there again, you see the, the, the lessons that the billionaires are taking um, is that, you know, what we really should be doing is, you know, preparing for life on Mars. We should mm -hmm. be, you know, uh, investing in um, ways to get ourselves out of this predicament. Um, and so a lot of energy, a lot of money um, is being put behind projects that are ultimately a new kind of eugenics, mm -hmm where it, the, the, the rich, the privileged, very often that'll also be the white, um, are finding ways that they think they're going to live through climate change um, and without meeting any moral responsibilities to other people in the world for the, for the fact that actually it was their forefathers and mothers who caused this problem in the first mm -hmm. place so that they can get through it, they can survive. Other people are going to die en masse. So it's, it's, you know, very important to think population and reproduction and this whole competitive fecundity idea at the same time as, as thinking about environmentalism. And it's, again, that's another kind of the way that the, um, how it's interesting about how these things are gendered, um, it, you know, through the kind of normative um, binary gender discourses that we have around this, that it is the... It is that there are these other bodies that need to be disciplined, and uh, which is very much kind of, as we were saying before, you know, a set of unruly bodies that are not like being controlled by the kind of uh, the coderless masculine, uh, uh, white, um, rational yeah. um, uh, kind of uh, mindset, I suppose. Um, Absolutely. 
they know the facts right. and the facts don't care about your feelings right. you know they're the kind of musk and core <laughs> yeah exactly I hate that uh, I really hate that term um, and then it's coded as feminine to be uh, you know the terms like justice um, transformation um, uh, solidarity care are coded as mm. kind of you know not manly yep. um, yeah. and in many ways the kind of uh, you know you know, subversive and, and problematic, and a part of this kind of uh, other that is being that that the the the, uh, the state, the white, uh, the, the the West, the white uh, whiteness has to defend against at all times. That's so mm. interesting and also deeply worrying. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I think you know uh, this isn't yet a you know, what, what would be termed eco-fascism. Mm. I think at the moment eco-fascism is understood in quite a, a specific way as being about like the protection of a, of a homeland where that homeland is um, imagined in, um, you know, a, a kind of a blut, blut und Boden kind of mm. way, you know, that like it's, it's that sort of um, uh, the, the place that is the, the home of the nation that must be protected. And um, if the rest of the world goes down in flames, you know, that's fine by us and even like accelerating that happening because ultimately what we wanted to protect is our uh, national homeland. So I'm, I'm not necessarily saying that, you know, uh, David Attenborough is an eco-fascist. I, I just think that we should be very, uh, <laughs> very careful about the way that we think about these and always have a, a justice-oriented um, uh, um, fair and inclusive vision of um, a, a sustainable future or, or whatever you want to call it. Not yeah. just, you know, sustainable is a bit of a problematic and, word, but yeah, in mind when we have these environmental conversations. And again, that's something which comes back to, uh, you know, often sexual health services, family planning services are, are kind of talked about in, in that sense. And that's, um, that's one for us who work in the sector. I don't, dear listener, I don't, you probably don't work in the sector. You shouldn't. Don't, don't it's too late for me but save yourself <laughs> but um it, we have to be really aware of this kind of thing and you know on the on the one hand that you know we have to uh you know i'm a member of the world association for sexual health so i should say you know that uh, uh sexual and reproductive health care is a right that everyone should have and be able to freely access free health care should be a universal right that everyone should be able to access uh on the other hand we also don't need to be um, taking part in environmentalist discourse, saying we need to be over there providing all of these contraceptive, you know, services, yeah. uh, which is you know, deeply, deeply problematic. As I was kind of talking about before, yeah. there was a, an article in the Guardian recently that actually um, uh, said, I think it was a Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation sponsored article, uh, where the argument was what we need to be doing is we need to be uh, channeling funding uh, for climate change mitigation measures into family planning. Right. <laughs> and there you can see exactly that logic yeah. playing out. Well, uh, this yeah. is that's really usefully. It's like you're doing all the segueing for me, Scott. This is great. <laughs> um, you're you, you you come across like a really experienced and seasoned podcaster um, <laughs> because we do get this kind of. We do start to see these kinds of uh, themes that we've been talking about about around gender um, and. Uh, sexuality and and power in seemingly benevolent kind of discourses like mm. um you know like liberal discourses and you know it's bill and melinda, melinda gates kind of you know one of the totems of i guess of uh, uh big you know biggest symbols of uh like liberal democracy uh, of the sort of let's call it the uh well yeah, whatever that period was, the long 90s. Um, mm. So, um, but we do see these kinds of things, like I was listening to Keir Starmer a few weeks ago talking about strong families uh, and people just generally kind yeah. of speaking about um, families and kids and, and you know, in ways which are uh, seemingly benevolent, but also kind of like just unable to be critical about this. Do you, I mean... Whilst on the other hand, as well, it, at the other end of things, it looks like Cuba has just about done something, which is which seems to be incredibly queer and uh, family abolitionist, and it is and it's literally talking about kith and solidaristic mm. relationships that people might have with each other, and how you know, it's almost as if we can't step out of the of the culture which tells us that the common sense is 
the common sense way that we need to live is the family without actually looking at how actually it's material interests that have also created that, that situation and that yeah. you know how expensive it is to live um and yet people sometimes take it so personally as well when we talk when we talk about any 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 other way of living or any other way of organizing our yeah. relations have you got any kind of thoughts about this well, I, I think, you know, that there are just so many um, ways that we can see a um, kind of the, 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 the revenge of the, of the, 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 the eternal values, you know, yeah. the, 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 the return of um, comforting and nostalgic notions of, oh, you know, we, you know, in the old days, there used to be these strong families, you know, in the old days, men were men and women were women, were women. You know, it's it's a a a, um, a very seductive uh, message to be sending out in times of great uncertainty, um, in times of uh, you know uh, poverty. Uh, you know, people are trying to make sense of the world, um, and you know, while it's burning around their ears. So it's it's a really it is a it is a problematic thing uh, to be doing for somebody like uh, Keir Starmer. Um, I, I think more generally. Um, seeing uh, the left uh, media um, uh, politicians um, kind of get, you know, feel that uh, trans experience is, for example, example something that is kind of safe mm. to mess with. Yeah. Um, that you know, it's it's a you know, at least we don't want to be those uh, politicians who lost the vote of people who believe that women are women and men are men, right. you know? Um, yeah. So there's so little bravery in that space. The, the bravest people at the moment are, of course, trans people mm-hmm. first and foremost. And then among cis people, uh, we've seen a couple of comedians recently actually, you know, sort of get on the, uh, you know, use their platforms for, for some kind of um, challenge to that. But it's it's such a, yeah, uh, um, a depressing thing to see yeah. that... People who, who's, who's uh, supposedly whose daily bread is things like solidarity, imagining new worlds, um, you know, uh, unpicking the relations between gender, families, capitalism, just to see them kind of buy into these comforting and wrong notions um, about some sort of golden age of uh, uh, masculinity, femininity and nuclear families. Um, we have to be uh, to be able to to um, imagine. I mean, for, for for trans people, it's a matter of of quite literally sometimes life and death. But you know, as a, as a as a uh, the, the whole world needs to be thinking in ways that exceed the the position that we're in at the moment. Um, that that you know don't uh, you know necessarily keep that weight of uh, tradition or expectation or of the eternal value continually holding us mm. back where we can dream up new ways uh, to be people, uh, where we can dream up new ways to be um, uh, kith or yeah. <laughs> with each other, yeah, yeah. as you say, uh, in Cuba. So, so that's, you know, those, those, that, those things are happening at the same time as these, you know, really uh, regressive ideas. There's also, a, 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 that's a good thing to remember also. Not everything is sliding yeah. um, at the same right. time. It's a moment of, of sort of instability, but also of great creativity. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think that's, um, it's, uh, uh, I think it's important to think um, of, to try to look for the glimmers of post-capitalism uh, and mm. and where they're happening. And, uh, you know, and uh, we certainly can see that, but the, certainly what we shouldn't be doing is just simply just reproducing, as you say, these kind of, um, uh, this kind of, uh, comforting but also quite like melancholic uh mm. um ideas mm. of uh of things that we've lost as well which is um yeah i mean yeah it's really yes we need yeah i was thinking should i go down on another tangent but also i kind of want to bring the podcast to end because uh, it's about the right length i think so uh imagine <laughs> what i might have said there dear listener and, and maybe have your own <laughs> podcast with that um and take it away um Scott, you've got a, a book also that I think you should promote because you know it's it, it, this is why people come on podcasts. Uh, it's not. It, I guess it, I don't, tell me about the book, and it, I'm assuming it's not directly related to what we're talking about, but also there probably are overlaps. Well, there there are there are themes uh, that are are relevant. So this is um, uh, arises from research that I did 
um, six, seven years mm. ago in South Africa um, when I was based at uh, the University of the Witwatersrand in Johannesburg. Um, and what I was doing there was looking at um, the everyday ways in which white people reproduce their rights to ownership right. um, and uh, doing that through talking about land, through talking about farming, uh, and very often through talking about environmental protection. Um, so sort of a big theme of that book um, is the um, uh, is the way the role that environmentalism plays in reproducing a colonial claim to to own and control uh, the land. Um, so the book is called um, White Belongings, mm -hmm. um, Race, Property and Land in Post-Apartheid South Africa. Um, and in it, I look at um, the, 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 you call them the long 90s earlier <laughs> on. So from that, 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 that moment of, of multi-party democracy in South Africa is, is very often seen as like heralding a new age, um, on, you know, for South Africa specifically, um, as being this moment of great hope. Um, unfortunately, what has happened is that a lot of, um, and I'll use the word liberal, so liberal assumptions about fairness of property ownership and of property rights have uh, kind of solidified um, property relations in South Africa. So, you know, 30 years down the line now, we are still in a scenario where um, white people own the majority of the land. Um, you know, South Africa is going through a very, very tough patch at the moment in terms of unemployment, sluggish economic growth, the, the decay of state institutions. So we've got many, many problems. Um, but one of those problems is that, you know, the, the vast majority of leadership positions, businesses, you know, the, 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 the fat of the land, as it were, is still um, controlled and enjoyed uh, by white people, even though that middle the, the middle class is is increasingly looking multiracial, the kind of the, the top level of of society still looks very very uh, white. So I, I sort of chart why why can that seem normal? Why can it seem natural? Mm. Um, and the example I mentioned at the beginning about the rhinos that's actually one one chapter of the book where I look at the um, the way that the the construction of the poacher. Um, as this uh, symbol of all that is wrong and threatening works uh, in that discourse. I also look at uh, the way people talk about landscape in the Karoo um, and uh, as a, a, a way, you know, in opposing plans to frack um, that beautiful landscape, um, the white environmentalists unfortunately also reproduce um, their innocence of colonialism and they erase all of the history of all the genocide and everything that the dispossession, all the war is erased and it's turned into this like very again comforting story about how white people came to own you know most of those sheep farms and everything uh, in the Karoo. Um, elsewhere in the book I also look at the way that um, when there are challenges to, to power um, and to, to these ownership patterns, um, that those are then re, uh, retold um, in the mass media and the international media um, about South Africa as stories of white victimization. So there's, and again, the BBC has been complicit in this, the Guardian's been complicit, like representing white poverty, like a, a crisis of white poverty in South Africa that, you know, uh, you know it's of course, also linked to the, the issue of farm murders and, you know, this idea that white people are so uh, victimized at the moment by uh, the new black government, you know, that, that that's become uh, a dominant script in, in a lot of media. So again, and that then reinforces um, the, the, the white claim to property there because any attack on property is immediately turned into a uh, kind of a genocidal act, um, you know, where people are then doing like, you know, oh, you know, the, the, they, they're going to do a genocide on the whites of South Africa, etc. <laughs> so, so yeah, that's that's what white belongings um, is is more or less. Well, about. that sounds like um, such an I'm interesting still book. Exploring some of those. That yeah. sounds, I mean, it, you know, interesting, worrying, terrifying, but um, yeah, important. Um, and yeah, definitely some um, overlaps with what we've been talking about today. Um, Scott, thank you so much for coming on the show again. And uh, I know a lot of listen, a lot of people listened to our last episode, and I'm sure this one will be just as popular. So thanks for joining me. Great, great. Thank you very much for having me on, Justin. It's been great talking to you. And if you've enjoyed the show, please consider paying for it. Uh, I can't make the show, 
uh, without the support from uh, my patron. So that's patreon.com forward slash culture sex relationships. Any support from just one pound a month would be absolutely amazing. If everyone who did the show listened to that, I'd literally be able to spend half my week doing the show. Um, so it'd be a proper part-time job. Uh, there are also some additional benefits as well. So shows often go out early. There are some extra show, extra shows. I've been doing readings from the book I wrote with Mechon Barker, Enjoy Sex, How, When and If You Want To. We also have a Discord where um, other patrons can chat with each other about the show. And also I started doing monthly meetups so where we can just uh, chat about the show and chat to each other and um, make new friends. So uh, that's patreon.com forward slash culture sex relationships. Uh, anything you can afford would be wonderful. Okay. Bye then. Bye. See you then. Bye. Bye.